but it's one thing I love more than getting my pitch over the plate. And that is getting over this plate in Casa Ole. It's like a fiesta in Casa Ole. Casa Ole, fresh today, every day. You get a free child's play, we'll use ticket stuff from any Astros game. Casa Ole, fresh today, every day. Casa Ole, Ole! Welcome to a special bonus edition of Lima Time Time. I am James Yasko, co-hosting with your friend and mine, Patrick McClellan. How are you, Patrick? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Great. Well, we have a, a special guest, and we're going to be doing it since, since we have this unlimited pro account on SoundCloud, and there are literally no limits and no restrictions on what we can and cannot do. Uh, I, we'll, we'll be doing this periodically from, from time to time, but we have a special interview edition. This is separate from the regular Lima Time Time recording that for us will be happening this evening. Uh, but this is uh, an interview, and since it, it seemed appropriate to do this at, at this point in the season uh, because of who the Astros are playing this weekend, uh, our special guest for today is Josh Cantor. He is the organist for the Boston Red Sox at Fenway Park. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thanks for being on. Uh, it's, uh, it is a pleasure. Are you a Game of Thrones fan? I'm not a Game of Thrones fan. I've never seen it, but uh, you are not, not the first person this weekend to uh, do a scheduling thing with me around Game of Thrones. So I'm sympathetic because I know that a lot of my friends like it. Patrick's the the Game of Thrones guy. I, yeah, I was gonna say you don't like it, do you, James? I'm the only one here that watches it. It's it's not that I don't like it. It's we we started watching it and then and we got like I think we got through. Like midway through the second season, and we moved uh, to Texas, and and we just we we just kind of lost lost our our mojo and our momentum. So it's not that I didn't like it. Go back and and keep watching. <coughs> just trust trust me on this. And I'm not like one of those weird fanatics that like I know all the characters and their biographies and stuff. But just go watch it. I'm not even into that stuff, and I love this show. See, that's the thing. That's I'm, how I know it's good because I'm not a sci-fi type person. So that's how I know it's a good show. You're just a boobies and violence kind of guy. Yes, I like random death and boobies. <laughs> I think everybody does. So, uh, all right. So, so Josh, you are the org. You've been the organ player at Fenway Park since what? Is it 2003? Yep, 2003. Okay. No. How and I'm sure what I'm what I don't want to do is be the typical interview guy that's like the Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney. I mean, like that's awesome, right? And <laughs> and, and that pretty much be it. But it is awesome, though. It, yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. It um, kind of works right there. So, I mean, how do you how do you get how do you get the how did you get the job? Um, I mean, I think like with any, you know. Well, with any dream job or kind of any job in a way, you um, you have to be a little bit good and you have to be a little bit lucky. I was a longtime organ player and a longtime baseball nut, um, and those were good sort of key qualifications. At the time, I knew someone who was working for the team, and he and I had written songs together. He was familiar with my, my playing abilities. He recommended me to someone he knew who was part of the audition committee. That was sort of a foot in the door for me to get a, a first audition, and I went in for a couple of rounds of auditions, and they kind of put me through the paces. Um, you know, before that, I mean, I had played with a lot of uh, different musical groups. I had done a lot of um, playing in musical theater. Probably the best 
training that I had for what I do at the ball games was um, I used to do a lot of piano and organ accompaniment, like for um, sometimes for silent films, but mostly for um, for theater troops where all the acting and the it was all everything was improvised on stage. So, so improv. Just, so yeah, you did improv. Yeah. So you had to see right. You had to see action occurring on the stage and respond to it with musical ideas. And that is uh, definitely a transferable skill in terms of what I do at the ball games because you see um, plays unfold, you see action unfold, and um, come up with musical ideas that, that fit the mood and that, and that entertain or maybe inspire the crowd a little bit. Well, do you remember what your audition song was? Oh, there were tons of them. I mean, I remember they kind of quizzed me on like, it was sort of just like the, a knowledge of 20th century popular music, all different genres and uh, eras and decades, you know. So they said, like, hey, let's hear a uh, let's hear a Motown song, let's hear a Beatles song, let's hear a Sinatra song, let's hear a disco song, let's hear a Tin Pan Alley song, let's hear whatever, you know, whatever. There was sort of like a long list. Um, they just wanted to hear me, you know, play and represent a whole bunch of different styles of popular music. Um, so that was part of it. And then, uh, you know, they asked me to play, um, they said, you know, play as many different things as you can think of that are 10 seconds or less that you think might sort of get a crowd going. So, you know, those little prompts and cues and that kind of thing. Um, and then, and then we talked about sort of situations, you know, baseball situations, like if this type of thing were happening in the game, what, what song might you play here? Um, and that was mostly just conversations where they were trying to get a sense of, of uh you know my my style my aesthetic maybe and i don't know none of none no one on the committee i don't think was a musician so i don't know if they knew exactly what they were looking for i think maybe they just sort of hoped they'd recognize it when they heard it i don't know how many other people auditioned i don't know if i was like head and shoulders above the rest or maybe i was like the least terrible person <laughs> auditions. I, I really have no idea, but um, I was definitely very, very excited, um, you know, to pass the audition and get the offer. And I think it was something, I mean, I've been saying for years that that was kind of, you know, the ultimate dream job for me. I didn't really ever think that I would get it, but I think maybe, you know, the, the friend who recommended me the audition committee, he had probably heard me say that at some point along the way. And that may have been partly why he, you know, recommended me. Wow. But Patrick, did you have something? No, I'm just kind of, it's just so cool. I'm, I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something good and I can't. <laughs> well, I was, I was really, I mean, that, that audition process is, uh, I would fold like a cheap suit. I, that's kind of what I, I kind of got into my own head thinking about that. Like, oh my God, like I, I'm, yeah, I'm was, familiar I mean, with the audition little... process and that's scary, man, when they're throwing stuff at you like that. Yeah, it was a little nerve wracking. I mean, some stuff I felt comfortable. Definitely. I remember I got a call back to come for a second audition. And for that one, I felt a lot more confident just because in my experience in auditions, it's usually if you get a call back, it means like you're in the top two. So then that was kind of a, a nice confidence boost for me. But um, the first audition, I, I remember coming away from it thinking that I felt like I had done OK, but not great. But it was terrifying, mostly because the actually um, stuck in another meeting elsewhere in the ballpark. And so he was running late. He was unable to get there. And so he called over to the audio engineer. He said, I'm not going to be able to get out of this meeting, but it's in a conference room that has a window that faces out onto the ballpark. It was an empty ballpark during the off season. He said, just turn on all the speakers in the park and I'll listen to the audition <laughs> from this other meeting that I'm in. And so, so the first audition was like 
live throughout the entire sound system in an empty, um, you know, 38,000 seat stadium. And I had at that point probably never played in front of, you know, in a building that had more than five or 600 seats. Wow. So that had to be a surreal moment in itself, just playing for Fenway. Like, uh, at, the, yeah. at the least, at the minimal of what the moment was. Like, did you even have time to, for that so, to soak in? Or were you so in audition mode, like, let's go get this, that that didn't even cross your mind? Like, whoa, this is a moment that I need to timestamp. No, it, it soaked in. There was an awareness that I was like, well, if I don't get this, it's, this is going to make for a good story anyway, just that I came mm-hmm. to this audition. Particularly at Fenway, because it's, it's I'm sure that the surrounding buildings, that if people were outside or whatever, they could probably hear me. Um, and I think, uh, and I was, you know, I was very nervous. It, it was sort of a, an enormous kind of moment because I, like I say, I had, it had occurred to me that that was like, like the kind of thing that I dreamed of doing someday. And I, I didn't think it was realistic. I thought, oh, man, I'm old and retired. I can like find a single A team somewhere in Idaho and, and go, you know, go play. Yeah. Oregon for them. But to have, to have the, the audition at the oldest ballpark, uh, in the majors, that was, uh, yeah, I was, I was not immune to, to a little bit of pressure and nervousness from that. I don't I think, deal well with either. Be, yeah, I think that's got to be a weird feeling, especially knowing that you have, knowing that you're confident in your ability to play. Like, you know you can play the organ, but, like, put in a situation where it's like you're questioning it, and it's, uh it's just pressure, and it that sucks. Yeah, you can but get inside your head a little bit with it sometimes, and I, and I think, um, I don't know, I mean, I look back, you know, that was 13, 14 years ago, like, I'm a... I'm a better player now than I was then, not to sound immodest, but like I've just played a lot since then. And I think, um, uh, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, they weren't, I imagine they weren't necessarily looking for the best organ player. They were looking for the organ player who was the right fit. And sure. maybe in some way that's what I was. Cause I know organ players who are, you know, better than I am, but someone who, can play the organ, but can also follow the game and knows like knows the what a nuances. double switch is. Not that yeah. you have double switches in the American League, but knows how to follow the baseball game and knows how the flow of the music can kind of fit into that. That was, um, you know, that was maybe part of what I was able to bring to the table. Now you mentioned other organ players. I randomly know the organ player for the Nashville Predators, the hockey team. Is there like a Crazy Kyle? I know Crazy Kyle. I'm good friends wow. with, with Crazy <laughs> Why Kyle. Why do you know so many organ players? I only know two. They just happen to... That, it's, just, it's just weird. I don't... And, it, and it's not like I... There's, I know like 20 different... I know 20 organ players and it, there's yeah, like... Yeah, I know that guy. Two of them that, that are organ players for major professional sports teams. But I guess... So, so you just answered my question. Is there like a fraternity of organ players that... That there's like... It's like truckers or school bus drivers that they wave to oh. each other when they walk... When they drive past... A little bit. Uh, there, uh, there is a little bit. I, my sense is that among the hockey folks, it may be a slightly stronger fraternity. I know that you know they have like an email listserv that they you know are on together, and I think this is a few years ago now, but I think they have a, a fantasy hockey league where they you know get together, where they just you know talk trash online and and, and build some camaraderie that way. Um, nice. 
there's a there's a bit of that with the baseball teams. Some organizations I've gotten to know better than others. I've I've really tried to reach out and connect um, because I want to learn from what other people's approaches are and how they do it. And it's such a small group of people that to be able to talk shop with them is um, is kind of a special opportunity. And I was um, growing up, I was a huge fan of Nancy Faust, who was the White Sox organist for 41 years. She really was oh, yeah. kind of the the premier pioneer. Um, of of a lot of you know, sort of what organ music at ball games became. Um, so, and she was when I was in high school in Chicago. You know, I would go to games, and her spot was um, out in the open. You could just go talk to her during the games, and I would just go and sit and watch and and uh, try not to pester her too much. But then when I when I got the job with the Red Sox uh, in '03, I called her up. I said, I don't even remember me. I was this annoying teenager, and, and uh, I don't think she did remember me, but she said, oh, well, you know, next time you're in Chicago when you come to visit your parents, um, you know, give me a call, stop by. And so I immediately booked a trip to Chicago and went to her home, and we spent an afternoon, like, playing duets together in her living room, and she gave me tons of great um, tips and advice and all kinds of tricks, and we became friends, and she really kind of mentored me in her final years of playing before she retired as I was starting, and... Um, so that is sort of a you know a That's friendship cool. and a relationship that I really really cherish, and I still you know will reach out to her from time to time, uh, even though she hasn't done the White Sox now for five or six years. You know, just to just to ask for advice or just to it's one of those things like getting a pep talk from her just kind of puts me in a in a very positive, confident state of mind where I feel like I can you know I can I can excel at the job. So. And for sure, and and she's like the pinnacle of organ players. Like even I know who she is, and like yeah, I'm right. not familiar I mean, at all was, with it. Like she's a legend. She's a legend. You know, she was really kind of the first one to um, to inject humor into the proceedings. She had a really, really perfect kind of whimsical style. Um, her sense of melody better than all the rest, so you could always recognize the tunes very, very quickly and immediately, which is great if you're only playing for five or ten seconds at a time. You know, she was younger. She was 23 when she started in 1970, and at that point. Um, all the organists were were a lot older, so they were playing. Um, uh, you know, none of them were playing anything that we would think of as being part of like the rock and roll era or the sort of golden age of art. Yeah, they were playing like that nineteen twenties Lucky Strike cigarette. Come on down to the park. Yeah, right. She she really she just sort of modernized the repertoire, and she continued to do that all throughout her forty years. She was all even in two thousand ten, and she was playing you know whatever the latest you know hot jams were from that summer. So um, she was great at that, and that was part of the advice that she gave me was like you should always keep keep learning new songs. Don't you know? Don't let yourself turn into a dinosaur if you want to be able to do this and do it well for a long time. So appreciate that very much. And you you recently I I know we we talked about this as it was as it was happening but you are the proud owner of of the actual organ that she played, right? Yeah, so she had well she had an organ in her home for uh, about 35 years and she decided um a few months ago to um, donate it to be auctioned with the proceeds to go to the White Sox Charitable Foundation. Um, and I was pretty excited about that. I had played that organ the first time that I went to her home. And um, I didn't think realistically that I'd be able to afford it or, or be able to find a place for it. So I wasn't going to bid, but I was um, trying to encourage other musician friends of mine who had more money um, to bid in the hopes that like, if they owned it, then at least I could maybe still get to visit it from time to time. And for whatever reason, I, I failed in my efforts to promote the thing and get other people to bid. 
bid. Um, but as a result, I put in a bid kind of on a lark and I was not expecting to win it and I won it. Um, and that was a little shocking. And then we had to figure out how to get it from Chicago to Boston. But I prevailed upon some musician friends in Chicago who do a lot of touring. And they're like, yeah, you know, we, we know how to put big, heavy instruments into vans and drive them across the country. So um, they did. And they did a really fantastic job of kind of chronicling the adventure. Um, they got a lot of press and they did a lot of uh, uh, great social media for it. And they made these funny little videos of their adventures. And they, um, they stopped in Cooperstown along the way and, and got a... Uh, you know, VIP behind the scenes tour at the Hall of Fame. They got a, a mayoral proclamation from the mayor of Cooperstown welcoming them. And then they came to Boston and we played a couple of shows um, that were fundraisers for charities that are affiliated with the uh, Red Sox and also with the Cubs. And um, the whole thing was just quite um, magical and delightful. And now I'm uh, sitting in my living room looking at this uh, organ that, that belonged to Nancy Faust for many, many years and that I get to to noodle around on every day. So it's a, a cool thing. And, and I know Nancy was excited about it because she felt like it was, you know, she was passing the torch and her, her life's work was, was going to the next generation. And uh, it, was, it was quite beautiful. Was there like a moment of like, oh, crap, I actually... Like if I was ever, I'm I'm terrified of auctions because I'm afraid that I'll actually win and have to put up the money that I promised I yeah. would. So was there like an oh crap I won moment? Yes, in fact, literally I I won and I and I took a screenshot of the email that said congratulations you're the winning bidder and I posted it online and my caption was holy crap and that was exactly how I felt oh. in the moment and. And then, you know, all these newspapers started writing articles about it. And, yeah, it was a total, uh, it was a total oh crap moment. Uh, and it was also, I mean, it was nerve-wracking because I remember it was like the, um, uh, I put the bid in sort of near the final minutes of the auction. And then the time ended and then I logged in to see what had happened. And then it said, oh, the auction's been extended for an additional 10 minutes, which apparently for charity auctions, you're allowed to do that, which I understand they're trying to drum up a little bit of additional last minute interest to right. try price up, get more money for the charity. But so there was a 10 minute extension and then another 10 minute extension. So sort of 20 minutes of sweating, waiting to see what was going to happen and not knowing if they were, were they going to extend it for another hour, for another day? I had no idea. So, um, it was, the whole thing was just very strange and surreal, but, but ultimately very, uh, wonderful. I'm just trying to imagine the conversation that I'd have to have with my wife and be like, uh, hey, just sort of on a whim, I put in a bid on this and it and it won like and it won and just the the wall-eyed fear of her like being mad at me. Well, I mean, I will uh, I have I have to give my wife all the credit because I I literally said to her, I'm very tempted to make a bid. I would really appreciate it if you could maybe talk me out of it because <laughs> I I fear that I'm going to have some regret or sadness regardless of the outcome if I do bid. Um, and she said, well, I and here's why. And she came up with um, some very good reasons for, you know, why it was meaningful to me and, and also why it was meaningful to her. This is something that like, um, you know, I told her early on, we've been together for a long, long time, but I told her at some point early in our courtship, like, you know, well, my dream job someday would be to be the you know organist for a major league baseball team, and she uh, she's just been incredibly supportive of that, you know. And that's that's eighty one nights every spring and summer that I'm not home, and she's holding down the fort, and she uh, 
you know, so she makes sacrifices for me to be able to do this. And um, so I think she had some sentimental attachment to Nancy's organ as well. And uh, I don't, I don't want to get too kind of like sappy about it, but she, um, she was, she was kind of the driving force behind, behind making the bid. So nice. Yeah. Have you missed a game? I have not missed a game yet. I'm literally knocking on wood as I say this. Um, I don't know how many it's been. I know it's been over a thousand because I remember, I think it was sometime in September of 2014 that they, someone did the math and figured out that it was, that it was a thousand home games. So that's impressive. Do you, okay. So what's your go-to song? Like what's your, what makes you the happiest to play? I know you got to switch it up and play so many different things, but like, what's like, what's yeah, your go-to? I mean, I don't know if I have a go. I mean, I guess the, in a way the answer is take me out to the ball game only because that's kind right. of the only scripted moment of the night for me. I know every night and during the seventh inning stretch that I'm going to play that song and people are going to stand. Do you play it differently? Do you fool around with it and yeah, with styles say, like I throw I some blues chords in or just anything just to make it different? I mean, I don't get so monotonous because I want I want people to um, be able to sing along. So I'm not going right. to get too crazy with that one. I would say it's evolved gradually over time. I might change some of the voicings a little bit here and there, experiment a little bit. Um, and obviously it's something like I could play that one in my sleep. I hear that song in my sleep. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just, it is what it is. I think the thing for me, the thing that keeps it from being monotonous is the fact that, um, you know, every night 38,000 people stand up and sing along to your playing. And that is a yeah, feeling you. that you never get tired of um so that's pretty awesome as far as other go-tos i mean i get the most fun out of just trying to mix it up as much as possible and especially for the fans who come regularly to not have to subject them to the same material um every night the dj and i oftentimes like to do sort of little themes we might pick a night and say um you know for this game the theme like try and think of an example um uh, one year on the anniversary of the moon landing, we did all songs about space travel or something. Um, yeah. So periodically we'll do stuff like that, and it's fun because we'll co- sort of go back and forth, and it's almost like kind of raising the ante on each other. Um, and we're talking to each other in a headset throughout the game, giving each other suggestions and cues and feedback. So um, it's really terrific to have you know basically a partner in crime with all this stuff. Um, I take uh, uh, requests. Uh, live during the game via Twitter on my phone. People in the stands can send me oh, requests cool. of songs that they want to hear, and I will that's try my best to learn them real fast and, and play them during the game if it fits well within the flow of the game. And I've been doing that for about three or four years, and that's been a really fun way to meet people and have people get this sort of special, customized you know experience of coming to the ballpark. And, um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we did. Um, it was a bit sad in a way, but it was also um, sort of cathartic uh, the last home game was Thursday afternoon and 20 minutes before the first pitch, we got word that, that Prince had died and the DJ and I just played Prince songs the entire game. Um, and got a lot of really nice feedback from people saying that they, you know, appreciated that we did that and that it, and that it was helpful for them. So, um, so we try to enjoy it and mix it up and have fun and make it fun for, you know, people who pay a lot of money to, to come see a game at Fenway park. Did they give you World Series rings? Um, the th- so I've been there for all three championships. The third time they did give me a ring. The first two times they did not. And I've never, no one's ever explained to me what the criteria are for 
why some people make the cut for getting it and why some yeah. people don't. Um, and uh, but but you got a ring, yeah, so, so who cares? That's <laughs> I, I got a ring the third time around, and that was a very nice gesture, and I appreciate it. And it's certainly a um, you know, it's a crazy big gaudy uh, conversation piece, if nothing else. Now, when people so like you mentioned, and you are real active on on Twitter, and you're at JT Cantor, is that right? That's me. Okay, so right, no. do how many people like do do people try to get you to like? Is anyone like tweet you and say, "Can you play Rump Shaker?" or just something that's ridiculously inappropriate and off the wall? And you're like, "No, dude, uh-uh, I'm not playing that." Uh, yeah, no, I do. I there's a, there's a few people who like to send off the wall requests, and I like to try to honor those requests as much as possible. Um, and in some ways, I can get away with some stuff that the DJ can't because he has to clean everything. You know, he can't play any foul yeah, language. Yeah, there's the no lyrics. But I can play a I can play an instrumental version of a of a filthy song, and maybe I can get away with it a little more easily because I'm not I'm not doing the lyrics. I'm just doing the melody and the <laughs> and the backing. Um, but yeah, I mean, and because I um, like I play in a lot of different indie rock bands, and so sometimes people who are fans of those bands will tweet me and say, "Hey, why don't you play this?" You know, or 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 affiliated band, you know, bands that I've sat in with or have been on bills with, and, um, and I, you know, I like to throw in that stuff a little bit, not not a ton, just because I think if you you mostly have to play songs that people will recognize, right. otherwise you alienate them. But every once in a while, you you throw the you know, you throw the music snobs a bone and the 50 people in the crowd who recognize the song get very, very, very excited about it. And that's kind of cool, too, to just sort of mix it up a little bit that way. But, yeah, no, I've had there's a couple of people that, that they'll tweet at me and say, like, hey, will you play this um, this Gigi Allen song or something? You know, and for, for something like that, it's easy to just say, no, nah, I don't play that song. <laughs> So you mentioned the other bands that you play with, and and I know because you you and I you sent me the the YouTube link, and I bet I watched it like a maybe a hundred times. But you got to play when the levee breaks. Was that in like ex- extremely northern like Finland? Is that right? Uh, extremely northern Norway. Up in Norway, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those. It's Scandinavian. You got Scandinavia right. That was a town on the Finnish border, so okay. you're close enough. I yeah. was close. So, but you play. You got to play when the levee breaks with like. Who was who was all up on stage? It was, it was John Paul Jones, right? Right, John Paul Jones, the bass player and keyboard player from Led Zeppelin. He was kind of the ringleader of that. Um, yeah. And then uh, uh, Mike Mills from REM uh, sang the lead vocal on that. And um, Steve Wynn from the Dream Syndicate. And uh, Linda Pittman was playing drums. And Scott McCoy and Kurt Block, who were sort of old Pacific Northwest, you know, rock stalwarts, were uh, were playing guitars. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a thrill of a lifetime. We were all uh, up there together playing at this little festival. And the day before the festival, we were kind of rehearsing some tunes and trying to work up a full set because we were going to have to play. I forget it was like it was like two nights of two nights of shows, like four hours each night or something. So yeah. at the last minute, we were kind of trying to add sort of like, okay, what are some songs that we all know? And you know, I think we all were a little too sheepish to ask John Paul, even the sort of you know, rock stars among us were uh, a little sheepish to ask John Paul Jones, like, hey, how do you feel about playing a Led Zeppelin song? You know, 
we all lean on doing it. Um, and then he was the one who, during the rehearsal, as we were trying to come up with songs, he sort of said to the group, hey, do you guys know this old song, When the Levy Breaks? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a moment yeah. of silence and then a moment of like, yeah, I, th- I think maybe yeah, we know that one. know that, yeah. So <laughs> we worked up a little version of it in rehearsal, although it didn't sound great in rehearsal. And so then we were all a little nervous. And John actually said, he said, I'm not worried. I'm sure you guys will nail it tomorrow. So that was sort of the... Um, he put that, you know, he put that little bit of pressure on us so that we all went, you know, back to the hotel where we were staying at the festival and kind of did some homework to make sure that, that when we got to the show that we would in fact nail it. And then, um, yeah, we did. And somebody, I, I sent you that YouTube video, like somebody in the crowd was, was, you know, just filming it on their phone. Um, but it was, I mean, I don't know, that's one of those things you never, ever forget. And that was my first, that was my first time playing in Europe. So it kind of made it, uh, everyone else was sort of seasoned. Touring musicians, but um, uh, yeah, I, I'll never forget that. I mean, I've been extremely fortunate to have a lot of crazy, surreal, wonderful moments of playing with musicians that I that have been my heroes, and uh, you know, and playing in crazy venues, concert halls, stadiums, all this kind of stuff. But that one uh, it was just a small little club in a in a you know little town in the middle of nowhere in the arctic circle and it was um totally unforgettable do, do shows like that or uh you know the concerts or when you're sitting in with a band or playing with one of your bands uh does that ever make you does that ever like lure you away in a sense where you're like maybe i could go do this rock star thing does it is that ingrained in you at all or do you like um, the sti- do you like the stability of knowing that you're at fenway and like that you have that purpose and like you don't have that rock star dream that you're suddenly could live out if you wanted to and yeah, you know what I, I mean no i do know what you mean and it's a good question i mean i i guess it's both i think sometimes i feel i mean well any musician will tell you that it's good to have steady work so knowing that, sure. that i have those 81 nights a year on the calendar is a good thing and especially since i love that job so much i love watching the red Sox and i love playing organ at that park um you know i wouldn't uh i wouldn't i wouldn't trade that for anything um, it's only been the last five or six years that I've been sort of doing a lot of traveling to play. Before that, I was mostly just kind of playing around the Boston area with, with local bands. Um, and, uh, but as I've done the traveling thing now, there's certainly, there's parts of it where I say like, oh my God, this is so much fun. I would love to do this more than, I probably do it four or five times a year for about a week at a time. Um, yeah. you know, and usually not during baseball season, although if the team goes on the road for eight or 10 days then I can maybe sneak in a, a few do days, a mini tour shoot off. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, every That's time I do it, I always feel great and I always love it. And I always think like, Oh, I wonder if I could find a way to, to do more of this. But I mean, I also like, I work a part-time office job. That's sort of what pays the bills, you know, and has the health insurance and, you know, maybe things would be different if I was, you know, 23 instead of 43. Gotcha. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I was like. I mean, I was a I was a responsible adult before I started um, going on tour, so it's a little okay, different. Good for you. In regard. Good for you for taking care of business. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, respectable. People need to learn to respect that. That's right. <laughs> Fulfilling obligations is sexy, girl. It is. That's the, that's the, that's the real rock star. That's right. <laughs> so. Uh, just as we kind of wrap this up and let you get back to your Sunday afternoon, um, yeah. with the Astros having been in the American League for a few seasons now, like what do you yes. what we're we're so wrapped up in in living and dying with each with every single solitary game? 
Do you? Yeah. What's your wide angle kind of distant view of the of the Astros as a franchise? Um, it's interesting because I would say that like before they joined the AL, they were probably they were probably the team that was the least on my radar over the previous few years, just because you know they weren't good. They were in another league. They were in another time zone. Um, I just didn't know much about them. You know, they never came to Fenway. I think they came to Fenway once or twice before they joined AL. So I just, I just did not really have much exposure to them. And then, you know, first time as an AL franchise, that was a little disorienting because I was like, just, just felt weird. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was like this for you guys. Oh, we didn't like it at all. You know, no, still like, don't. Must have been very, very strange for the first season and maybe beyond. You know. Um, but now, you know, they come for three game set every year. Um, and now they're good again, or at least last year they were very, very good. You know, this year I, I still think they're going to be good. Um, even though they have not had a great start out the gate, but, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I had, um, before I went to high school in Chicago, I went to grade school down in um, Athens, Georgia. So I was a Braves fan as a kid, sort of like, Ugh, get out of here. <laughs> and, um, but they were, you know, but the Braves were in the NL West at the time, which was also very strange. But so I probably know more about, you know, the late seventies and early eighties, the Jose Cruz Astros, the Joaquin Andujar Astros, than I yeah. do about, um, the current crop, but obviously they've got a lot of, um, very talented young players right now. So I feel like if I was an Astros fan, I'd kind of have feel like I had a lot to look forward to right now, particularly after, you know, having suffered for that, that spate of few years prior to last year. That's pretty dead on to be honest with you. Yeah. That's a very, (laughs) your reason and logic is not welcome here. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you? I mean, are you guys hitting the panic button right now? Yeah, we're in the or same boat. I, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm definitely ready to panic. Yeah. So, because no one ever said anything about starting out the season six and twelve, like that was. Well, the Red Sox are right around there too, aren't they? Uh, the Red Sox, I think, are eight and nine. So okay, so they're, they're close. Okay, so they're, they're not as bad. bad as six and twelve, but I, you know, I mean, I think. Uh, they are eight and nine. Yeah, it could, could be. You know, things could be better. Things could be worse. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I, I think, I think they've got a. I think they can make the playoffs, and I would obviously, of course, love to see that happen. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's funny, James, because I, you know, I remember last year you were just like things were going so well for so long, and it just seemed like you, you were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, <laughs> with Astros all year, um, and then you know they ended up. I mean, maybe they fell a little short of where they could have, but they, you know, but they gave you a, a terrific season. And um, I'm not, I don't know if it's because I work there or if it's because I, or if it's just my disposition or what, it, or maybe being satiated from having won some championships in recent years. I'm not, I'm not a fatalist kind of fan. I, I, I usually am more, uh, I just, I just usually feel like, yeah, you know, well, okay, we're behind four runs, but we've still got a shot in this game. Or, oh, we didn't win today, but, you know, but we'll win tomorrow. It's just that kind of, um, yeah. a little, yeah, think- maybe a little more, I don't want to say carefree, but I just, I just tend to think that whatever is going to happen next is going to be fun and good. Yeah, I think championships would do that to your, uh, yeah. 
to your psyche a little bit. I feel like I would take if we got a ring, I would I wouldn't complain for a few years. I would just sit back yeah. and enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like that would take it, this is all pent up stuff that we're dealing with. No, I understand that. I mean, I think you know my first and, year uh, and Red Sox fans Red should know Sox that pretty well. Yeah, certainly, you know, I went through that um for a while with the Red Sox and you know, of course it's been tough like they they were in last place last year and they were in last place the year before that and um that didn't make me real happy. I mean, it's still fun to go to the games and to work the games, but it's more fun when they're winning. So, so Patrick, have you been to Fenway before? I have been outside Fenway. I've never been inside it. It, it is on my bucket list. And I, I was a, I was a closeted Red Sox fan when we were in the NL. They were my AL team when okay. before, before they won a pennant. I, I loved them just because I, I just loved the understory and the underdog thing. And, you know, I wanted them to pull through. So when they won that World Series, like, I was all in. I, I have a Nomar Garcia Parra jersey somewhere in my closet. <laughs> but I've never made it up there. But it it is in my uh, – it's on my list for sure. So and I will, I'll make it up there for sure. I've been, to, I've been to Fenway Park once. And I've actually – and it was for a Yankees-Red Sox game. Wow. Um and I've actually only I went to I've been to Yankee Stadium once, and it was for a Red Sox Yankees game. All right, braggart. Well, the, no, this the the one at Yankee Stadium. Like I was thinking, like this, you know, how many Hall of Famers are we going to get to see while we're there? And it was like the starting the the pitching matchup at Yankee Stadium was uh, Daryl Rasner versus Josh Beckett, and and that game just ended. Like even though that was it started in two thousand eight, like those dudes <laughs> just took so long. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, Beckett. He likes to. To dabble a little bit, yeah. So, so, but the, yeah, no, those—I mean, those games are those Red Sox Yankees games are notorious for lasting a very, very long time because there's just a lot of, you know, pitching changes. They do a lot of, you know, lefty righty stuff, and there's a lot of stepping out of the box, and 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 of course, the national broadcast always wants to pick them up, and the national broadcast always adds a few minutes the yep. additional advertising time over the course of the game. So, yeah. So the the game that I saw in Fenway. Uh, was May 2nd, I think it was May 2nd, um, maybe May 1st. May 1st, May 2nd, 2006, Yankees-Red Sox. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know what was significant about that game? Was that Johnny Damon's first game at, at Fenway in a Yankee uniform? It was. That's amazing. I, have, I, can, give nice. you a story about, I can give you a story about that if you're interested. Yes. Um, that was also... Oh... If I recall correctly, it was it was either that night or maybe the night before or the night after. But um, uh, it was also the night that Doug Mirabelli got a police escort to the game. It was that night. All. Yeah. yeah. So, so the the Red Sox had um, had let Doug Mirabelli go. You know, he was a, a serviceable backup catcher, um, but. Not much more than that, but he had been Tim Wakefield's personal catcher, and of course Tim Wakefield right. threw that crazy knuckleball. Um, but the Red Sox had sort of decided, you know, we can we can find some we can find another backup catcher to, to learn how to catch the knuckleball. Um, and over the course of spring training in March, and then throughout the games in April, um, that that effort was not really working. Um, I think it was Josh Bard was the catcher, and he just was having a ton of trouble um, with the knuckleball, like several passed balls at each game um and so the uh the red sox um in a bit of desperation perhaps um traded a promising young reliever named clay meredith 
to San Diego in order to get Doug Mirabelli back because he had signed with San Diego. I remember um, that. And Wakefield was going to pitch that night, and Mirabelli was on a cross-country flight to Boston to get there for the game that night. And there was a, you know, he they needed him to get there on time, and he, the flight was running late, and and um, and apparently he donned his uniform in the back of a patrol car while getting a police escort <laughs> from. Uh, That's great. From the airport to Fenway Park. But the other thing I remember about it was that he was, you know, he wasn't going to get there right on time for the game. He was, but it was close. He was only a couple of minutes late. Um, But we were doing our normal pregame ceremonies that we do every night, you know, the ceremonial first pitch and the national anthem and honoring various dignitaries and various charities and various celebrities and all this kind of stuff. Um, And then at one point, the producer, you know, was in my ear on the headset and he was saying, Josh, if you could just play something for a couple of minutes, we just kind of need to stall. (laughs) <laughs> until Mir- Mirabelli gets here. Um, so that was my responsibility. I don't remember what song I played. Um, and I think I was, you know, we weren't supposed to be drawing attention to the fact that we were deliberately stalling because the umpires wanted to start the game on time. But uh, but that is, my, that is my main recollection of that night. Yeah, and you I played a role in Damon's that. That's reception. great. Damon's reception was mostly positive. I think there were a few boos um, because he was wearing the pinstripes. But... Uh, but obviously, he had had a terrific four years in Boston and, and was pretty beloved. So, yeah, I, I booed him. I don't know why. I don't really know why. <laughs> um, yeah, because you just don't do that. We've had people. You just don't do that. Go to the. Uh, that's like the one team you don't sign. Go with. to the enemy. Yeah, I mean, after he was a he, such a hero there, because, too. I'm sorry. What was that? After he was such a hero too, and destroying them, he was like the guy that brought them down. You know, he hit that big home run. Yeah, hit that grand slam, right? And and, uh, uh, and he was just like he, he was the essence of Boston. One of them, the Veritek, and there were all those guys. But he yeah, was no, just I mean, in like they were the idiots. Johnny Damon, you know. Oh, and then he's a Yankee. It's like that. Just like it strikes you right in the heart if you're a Sox fan. Yeah, no, it it definitely did not sit well with a lot of people. Um, but then there were others who. I mean, maybe it was easier to forgive because weight had been lifted. Um, right. I don't know. Or you just say, you know what, he gets a free pass. Um, or I think, you know, there were also some people who said, like, I'm going to boo him the first time up just to get it out of my system. But then after that, <laughs> it, it's that okay. sounds, that's fair. That's a fair trade off. Yeah. He deserves that. Yeah, <laughs> I have a I actually have a shirt that I bought outside of Fenway and I'll I'll tweet a picture of it. But, uh, you know, the, okay. the, the very famous Johnny Cash uh, where he, picture where he's flipping off the camera. Yeah right. Yeah. So I I have a shirt that that it that it has the dates you know the date of the game his first game back and it says Johnny Cash but it's Johnny Damon flipping off uh, and it, that's great and making kind of wow. mocking him for taking the money I don't know. Well I remember with the T-shirt because he wore number eighteen from o two to 05, and then I don't think anyone wore it in 06, but in 07, um, Daisuke Matsuzaka came over from Japan and he wore it and so I remember a lot of people who had their their Damon t-shirts and jerseys that had his number and name on the back and then they duct taped over the Damon <laughs> or in, they, in some cases they duct taped just over the M-O-N and, but uh, the D-A and then they added the left <laughs> you know duct tape or something love it so, well Patrick do you have anything else? no this has been great it's been some cool stuff I love stories and the inside stuff like this. Yeah, Josh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at JT Cantor, K-A-N-T-O-R. Uh, tweet him your favorite uh, UGK uh, and, yes. and hor- horrible, horribly offensive songs that you would like him to play. 
Yeah, um, and more importantly, tweet me, uh, you know, Houston listeners, like, tweet me songs that are emblematic of Houston or come from well-known um, Houston musical acts, because this is something that I like to do when teams come to town, is to play music that their town is known for, and I confess... There we go. That's my a- playlist on the Houston material is a little weak. So those of you who okay. are who know the Houston music scene and, and okay. music history, send me some of that stuff, and I will learn it and I will play it when the Astros are at Fenway. Awesome. That's a deal. Well, Josh, thank you so much, and uh, really appreciate you spending part of your Sunday afternoon with us. We will have this posted tonight, uh, and it'll 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 go up uh, later today. Uh, and regular listeners of Lima Time Time, we will be recording our next show, episode four, this evening as well. Patrick, I'll talk to you soon. Go Rockets! That is one thing I love more: than getting my pitch over the plate, and that is getting over this plate in Casa Ole. Like a fiesta in Casa Ole. Ole! Casa Ole, fresh today, every day. Ole! Get a free child's play, will you stick your stuff from any Astros game? Casa Ole, Ole! fresh today.